Podcast with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Pietri. Bill Burns, we know you as the publisher of UFO Magazine, but you haven't been around in recent months. Now, you haven't been picked up by the Silence Group, have you? I have not been picked up by any group um, except for for the History Channel. What we've been doing for, um, and I can't talk about it much because I am embargoed by, um, not embargoed, but History Channel wants to wait until after the show airs and we launch our promotion, which will be on Monday. Monday, February 4th, so it'll be after the show airs, but um, I've been asked not to talk about it at all, except to say that that's what I've been doing. I've also been writing, I've also been uh, wrapping up three manuscripts, which is really tough to do when you're on the road with very spotty internet service. You've been traveling all over the place then. You don't have to tell us where you've been traveling. But you also have three co-hosts. Can you tell us who they are or how you got them involved um, in the project? Real briefly, um, this whole thing began years and years ago when uh, Pat Uskert, who just wrote to us the magazine, Pat's a Venice resident, and Pat wrote to us the magazine. And um, so this is really a UFO magazine story more than anything else. Pat wrote to us at the at the magazine um, saying, I had this phenomenal sighting, and he told us about the sighting that he had right uh, up the street from Venice Beach, which is where he lives. And um, Pat, at the time, was working for Yahoo, and he was, or I'm sorry, he was working for an educational software developer, not Yahoo. And he was to challenge himself rather than simply accept the fact, and I, I know David, you'll appreciate this. He mm-hmm. saw something, he said it glittered metallically, it, it looked really unlike anything he'd ever seen, but taking the David Biedney approach, which is nothing is real unless it passes a whole series of tests, what he Pat ran back, got his movie camera, his video camera and took some video. I saw the video and said, I cannot tell you, I would not stake my life on whether this is a balloon or a UFO. Okay? So he was very skeptical. In fact, he still is. So he got a balloon that basically looked very much like the size of the object as seen through the lens in close-up. And he admittedly said, you know something, you really can't take with a handy cam, with a handheld camera, you really can't take great UFO video because when you try and bring it close during doing a digital zoom, uh, it yeah. fuzzes out. So there are a lot of things you don't know. So, he, I mean, he, he, he would readily agree with you, David, that video in a regular home video camera is probably the worst way to try and capture a UFO on tape. But anyway, that's what he did, because it's all he had. And then he tested it out with a balloon, and he said, look, I swear the balloon had different flight characteristics, different reflective characteristics than what I caught on camera. And so he sent us this kind of a split-screen thing that he did with the original sighting on the left, the bill on the right. We were fascinated. And so Nancy, we all got together. We carried the story. I think back in 2004, there's a photo of Pat Uskert on the magazine pointing to the place in the sky outside of his house where he saw the UFO or where he saw the object, where he saw the phenomenon. How's that? Because we still don't know what it is. And um, we invited him to write up something for the magazine. And then Nancy had this idea. idea. She said, you know, Pat, I'm sure there are people just like you all around the area, Burbank, wherever, right? It will be great. Do you want to do a series for us, like a magazine series, going out on the road? And when you have the time, you're working full time, we understand that, going out on the road and interviewing people who've had these experiences. So it's not really about 
is it a UFO? This is not a scientific approach to saying this is a UFO or not. What it is, rather, is how what you saw, whether real or a balloon or a streak of light, affected your life. Sure. So remember the old Charles Kuralt series? I can spend an hour on Charles Kuralt, too, if you'd like. But an old Charles Kuralt, he's a great case in law school, by the way. I'll, someday I'll tell you about his case. The whole thing, um, like the Charles Kuralt series, On the Road, but it's On the Road meets E.T. On the Road meets Close Encounters. So how about calling it UFO Road Trip? Pat loved it. He was seized by the idea. Like he would be, you know, he was the Richard Dreyfus, who, uh, you know, Type of character who saw something, he didn't know what it is, but he's got to find out what the truth is. He didn't go to any strange mountain, but he had to find out what is the truth. Pat got his camera, got into his SUV, and started making trips to various places. Phoenix, Arizona, where he interviewed Jeff Woolwine and Jeff Willis. He interviewed Bob Dean. And he was, he's a good little filmmaker, and he was out there taking some great videos. And we said, wow, this is some great stuff. I mean, Jeff, one of the people he interviewed was believed in the, in the um, legitimacy of uh, strange hieroglyphic-type shapes like helicopters and saucers and disks uh, on mountain carvings north of Phoenix. And so Pat was able to get his footage of one of these strange objects, a dumbbell-shaped object in the sky, looking just like the dumbbell-shaped hieroglyphic. I, I can't explain it and won't even try to. And went up to Sonoma and Mount Shasta to visit Mark Olson and some other people. So this is great. So between Nancy and Pat, I wasn't even, you know, I was involved, but I wasn't even, you know, I was doing other things. They said, let's try and sell this. Bill, who can you take it to? Well, we had just finished, I'd done a few movies of the week before. I, I did one for Lifetime years ago called When Husbands Cheat. We, we were in the process of just wrapping up our A&E movie called Riverman, the book that I wrote with Bob Keppel and Hawk Koch produced it, which I really wanted to know. It was really like a big, big deal for them. And uh, we had just signed to do with History Channel the day after Roswell with Hearst as a documentary. Mm -hmm. So I went back to Hearst and I said, what do you think about this? And Hearst said, we love it. Let's do it. That's, that was great. Well, then get into what's known as development hell. And for the next two years, it went through a thousand incarnations. Um, Pat went and filmed his friends. He, he turned it into a threesome. And that way, you know, they, were, and they went out to the desert. They were testing balloons. I like these guys, too. Then I started doing the UFO Files episode for a motion picture productions and History Channel. I did a few of them. I did the Russian Roswell, USOs, Black Box Videos, Black Box NASA, and finally USO Red Alert. And so they said, listen, um, Hearst by now had said, you know what, we're going through our own issues, so um, we're not going to do it. So, okay, fine, they're not going to do it. So then we took it to these guys, and they said, you know what, could, could you assemble the guys in this video and do a segment for us? We're going to go out to Redondo Beach, and we're going to um, shoot some stuff and uh, look for a USO. Fine. We did it. And so basically at that point, UFO Hunters was born. I was really like back in 2000. And uh, they had, history had done a show in 2005 called UFO Hunters. And uh, now we were in, I guess it was late 2005, early 2006, doing another UFO Hunters. And so um, another version of it. And it was really a big 
rating success. And so it was really, it was driven by Pat. I mean, Pat was really, he was a scuba diving instructor. His friend uh, was, a, was a scuba diver. Um, his other friend was a graphics guy who built video games, was a programmer, and he was a total skeptic. He's an all, he's a, as a total, absolute, if a UFO landed in Rendlesham Forest and he were there that night with Jim Penniston, he'd say the whole thing was a hologram. Oh, oh, it was a hologram. Okay, that's and he was, but he was great. Then our scientist Jules. Well, I'm sorry, sorry. His name was a Kevin. Phenomenal guy. Um, he was just finishing his PhD. Just, I think, just wrapping up his dissertation when he did it. And so, and 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 Pat throughout was not a believer, but he was so fascinated by the people that he was talking to more than believing in the existence of UFOs. He was fascinated by the way the UFOs changed their life. And I think, believe it or not, he was most fascinated by Bob Dean, whom we can discuss and infinitum. Mm. Okay, I mean, he's a friend, but you know what Nick Pope said, so we can all discuss that. But the point is, fascinated by the larger picture of, of what Bob Dean said about what he saw at shape, the, the, the document, the assessment, what it meant. And he was just, there's a greater truth out there. I don't know what that truth is, but I've got to find it. And so that's, that's really Pat. And, and when you see him on screen, he really comes off very, very well. I mean, he's a, he's a good-looking guy. Uh, but, you know, more than looks, he, is, he really is the character that you see on screen. He's not acting. He has a lot of problems with the reality of UFOs. He has a lot of problems with various witnesses. He can argue either side vigorously, which is what he does, and, uh, and he did it with us. So uh, he worked for the magazine. He wrote for the magazine for a while. Ma uh, Pat was doing the um, maps for the magazine, you know, that section of UFO sightings. He was doing that for a while. Yeah. And then um, he, he was switching jobs and doing his own videos, so he worked as a subscription manager for UFO magazine for a while and then found another full-time job and then took that and worked at that until the show was picked up by history. Got it. Well, it sounds to me like he's the kind of guy, Bill, that we definitely get along with on this show because the whole idea of arguing both sides of the, of the fence is something that certainly uh, we've been doing here on the Paracast as well. So it sounds like we need to get Pat on the show. Oh, definitely. And what I'm going to do is I am doing a satellite tour with uh, with History on Monday the 4th, Monday morning. And um, I definitely will get him to do the show. I mean, Pat is a great guest for a bunch of reasons. One, he's absolutely not dogmatic in terms of it's real, it's not real. Right, right. On the other hand, he did have an experience. Mm -hmm. And on the same hand, he doesn't know what that experience was. I mean, you can't tell. I mean, if you said, Pat, you saw a UFO, oh, my God, you've got to be a true believer now. He'd say, no, I'm not, because I don't know what I saw. I know right. it didn't have the flight characteristics of a balloon. It'll go into the characteristics that a balloon had. He said, I put a balloon in the air. I was photographing it. Every little whiff of wind, you could feel it's by the beach. I know which way the wind blows off Venice Beach. Um, the balloon was flying with it. This thing was flying against the wind. It was, it, it was a measured flight, a controlled flight. Was it an Air Force plane? Was it an Air Force weapon? Could be. Can't say it isn't. Right. But you see, Bill, the, the thing is that this sort of reflects what I think a lot of us hope is a new movement in the realm of UFO research, which is to take a centrist position. You know, this is a term very popular in discussions of political machinations, but to take a centrist position and say, all right, look, you have on one hand the debunkers who basically will deny 
like you said, if, if a UFO landed right in front of them, they'll say, I'm hallucinating, this is not really happening. You have them on one side. Then on the other side, you have the people who are the doe-eyed believers. And they haven't had an experience, but they are so desperate for one that they'll buy into any story that's thrown at them. There, there's got to be a middle position. And I have to tell you, I mean, this is where I find myself. I'm an experiencer of a wide range of paranormal stuff that doesn't pretend to have answers and is really, truly interested in not in believing anything, but in getting to some sort of understanding. I think this is a new movement in the paranormal world in general. And maybe, just maybe, this change of tone will get us a little bit closer to uncovering the secrets behind this stuff. Well, I, I think I think that you'll find this with the show, because I know Pat is one, I mean, uh, uh, now the other uh, people on the show, uh, Ted Ackworth yeah. is, I mean, Dr. Edward J. Ackworth, he's, he's, he's actually from Long Island, went to Columbia, and... Um, oh, he's a good guy already, don't have to say anymore. <laughs> right, he went to Columbia, I mean, uh, that was one of the first things, we, uh, we both went to Columbia, albeit like 40 years apart, but, yeah. and he went to MIT, he got his PhD at Stanford in physics, and went to MIT Sloan Business School because um, he realizes physics don't pay. And, no, I mean, it, seriously, he, he went to Sloan Business School, is at MIT now, and, in fact, we're in Boston now uh, because Ted just had a baby, his wife just had a baby, and so we really um, are doing an episode here in up in Boston because Ted really can't leave. There's a newborn baby in the house. So, um, and, we're, and we're filming some follow-ons to a previous episode up here in Boston. And the exciting thing, and, and then I'm, I'm doing the promotional tour with Ted here in Boston. We're going to take opposite positions. I mean, I, I'm more of like a pro UFOs exist mainly because I've seen one, but um, I don't know what it was either. And um, plus, I've seen the document, so you know, I, I know a lot more than that. But right. the he is, how can I put it? Uh, He's the hardcore scientist. He's an I mean, open-minded skeptic. I mean. Ted's very good about one thing, and he's very, as I'm saying, he's open about this. It's one thing to say, I'm a scientist, and unless I see something, darn it, you know, it's not real unless I say it's real. I knock on the table, and it's real. Well, no, that's not what he says. What Ted is saying is this. If you want to convince somebody who's been trained in science, if you want to do that, then, then the way to do it is not to scream UFOs are real, but to say, look, this is the level of evidence that we have, and given the evidence, where on a scale of credibility does that evidence fall? And right. there's a, a preponderance test. Is the preponderance of the evidence more likely to show this is a UFO? And by UFO, I mean flying saucer, because Ted absolutely believes in UFOs, and he says it on the air. I believe that there are objects that fly that we can't identify. Right. Now, it doesn't and mean that they're not... Right? He said it doesn't mean they're not Absolutely. Venus, and it doesn't mean they're not an Air Force plane, or it doesn't right. mean it's not a strange balloon that somebody can't see. It's unidentified. It's simply that's what it means. Yeah. 
I think most of you know that I love radio, and so I decide to look for the ultimate receiver for AM reception because I want outstanding AM reception, day and night, especially night where it gets difficult. So I've discovered that C-Crane CC Radio Plus has earned the reputation of having the best AM reception, which is exactly what C-Crane intended when they designed this gem of a radio. Along with its legendary AM reception, it also has excellent FM reception, a weather band, TV audio, and the ability to run on batteries for, and listen to this, 250 hours. So whether you use it as your bedside radio in your kitchen or at work, the CC Radio Plus will give you the pleasure of clear AM reception. The radio is designed for the clarity of the human voice and the benefits of useful features like five memory buttons per band. They work just like memory buttons in your car, a sleep timer, an alarm clock so you can get up at the right time, and a weather alert that now works as an all-hazards alarm. You know what I want you to do? I want you to buy that radio, but also support this show by visiting techbroadcasting.com slash ccrane. That's techbroadcasting.com slash ccrane to order the CC Radio Plus for $164.95, and that includes free ground shipping and a free ccrane catalog. Place your order today. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with James You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, Bill Burns, co-host of UFO Hunters, the History Channel TV series that has premiered, and of course, publisher of UFO Magazine, and we're talking about the people who are making up the show, and let's continue with that, Bill. So, I mean, that's Ted. So he's not he's not um, a skeptic, a, a diehard skeptic, the kind of people you'd see on uh, Michael Shermer, James McGahey, the people you'd see on Larry King. He's saying, look, you know, what is the level of um, evidence that you have? Where does it fall on the credibility scale? And, I mean, if it's a person screaming, I believe in UFOs and I saw a light, you know, I tend to kind of put that into I want to discount it because there's nothing to back it up. However, if this is a pilot, uh, on the order of the pilots, we met at the National Disclosure Conference with thousands of hours in the air. Ted's a pilot, too, who picks up a radar hit, has a ground sighting, has another pilot see it like Parviz Jafari. Then, you know what? Uh, and, and this light interacts with him in a certain way, and then, you know what, um, um, you know, that's higher on the credibility scale. So, I mean, he's willing to talk about that. And then there's Jeff Tomlinson, who's actually, he's called Jeff the Apprentice, and he's a, a kid from Seattle, and I'm saying kid, he's, not, he's 23, he's still in college, and um, he's a science 
biology major, doesn't know whether he's going to be pre-med or, or, or what, but or, or marine biology, but he, he's a bright kid. And one of the things that we found with both Jeff and Ted is that between the two of them and the various guests we have, like Dave, various guests we have from around the, around the world, they can talk science, and it's a very intelligent conversation. And it, it's fun to hear them discussing the science, and it's fun to argue with them. It's fun to kind of say, come on, guys, you know, aren't you being, um, aren't you being a little too stringent in what you're calling evidence? And, you know, they'll both say no. And, and then there's my perspective, and my perspective is very different. I, I, tend, to, I tend to align more, believe it or not, with uh, my writer uh, for UFO Magazine and Filament Books, uh, Jeremy, your publishing company as well, Gene, uh, Jeremy Vady, saying sometimes the answer is not something you'll find, but it lies in the quest. So you don't have to throw your anchor to believing, or you don't have to throw your anchor to not believing, but there may be a greater, and this is, and this is truly what I think, that there may be a greater truth, and the more you penetrate the issue, the more you drill down, the more you pull in more facts, and the more confusing it gets, the greater the chance you're probably going to see a pattern, and it's that pattern that leads you places. I mean, I've been astounded at, um, just in terms of UFO magazine and nothing else, and believe it or not, astounded, I, I'm doing it, and this is not a plug, I'm just saying this is where it ties in, although, although it's a plug by default. I'm doing the sequel book to um, your friend George Nori uh, called Workers in the Light, <laughs> and uh, we've gotten literally hundreds and hundreds of anecdotes, and I am blown away by what people say they're seeing. Now, I'm not investigating these. I'm not saying, no, you did not see the Archangel Michael. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, I don't know, but if what you're saying is true, obviously something has turned your life around, awakened you this that and I do believe well I know it because scientists have tested it there is physical evidence testing this I mean anybody who reads um, Harold Putoff's discussion of what happened when Ingo Swan came to SRI and set those meters off would have to say there's a scientific uh, coefficient to all of this but that there is something that's very different that's paranormal and on, I don't know what to call it I don't know whether there are dimensional gateways I don't know whether there are dimensional switch tracks I just know that people see things that other people don't see and that our level of testing is a very narrow test. I did a blog, we interviewed um, Seth Shostak for the magazine, for example. Hmm. And Seth, who people say is the demon of ufology, he's against UFOs, doesn't believe them, not true, not here, not this, not that. Actually, that's not the case. One, he's a really educated, intelligent, very gracious Princeton graduate, which warms my heart immediately. And But he's the first to admit that SETI can only measure intelligent life by those entities, species, that have radio. And so you say, Seth, dolphins are intelligent. Dolphins don't have radios. 
bees communicate in a very complex language. They've got a hive mentality. You know, don't knock over a hive. You'll find out what a hive mentality really is. They've got a hive mentality. They raise their queen. They find honey. They can they can adjust for the angle of the sun, distance, and I don't know what the distance is, like bee wiggles. I don't know. It's not miles. The wind, the direction they fly, how many different paths they've got to take through the bramble bushes, they can do all that. If they don't have radio, dolphins don't have radio. What if they, this is Isaac Asimov's foundationers, right? They've thousands of years beyond radio. They communicate by, um, you know, playing their plows or something. Um, they don't have radio. So what's the deal on radio? And Seth said you're oh. absolutely right. He said you're absolutely right. That's this true. all comes back, Bill, to the idea that science is all-knowing. And in many ways... In our culture, religion and, and science are now sort of, well, let's put it this way, extreme dogmatism in science is really not very indistinguishable from religion. I mean, at that point, when you have a scientist saying, well, I mean, on the recent Larry King shows, we all saw Magaha. I can't even pronounce his name, and I don't I want to. I thought it was McGahey myself or Magaha. Uh, I, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know. But we see in him this dogmatic sort of closed-mindedness. I mean, he's telling people, you didn't see a craft blocking out stars. You saw a bunch of airplanes flying in formation. It's like, no, there was no sound. There were no lights on this thing. It was blocking out stars. What are you talking about? There were no flashing lights. No, you don't know what you saw. You're not a, you're not a, 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 a good observer. Well, I, I submit that basically every human is a good observer and every human is a bad observer. It's all about the context. And, I mean, and in the end, th this is about trying to expand our understanding of the nature of reality. We do not understand all of reality. And without extensive external instrumentation, our own senses in the typical average human being are very limited. People don't understand that when they look with their eyes around them, they say, I'm seeing reality. You have to stop them and say, no, you are seeing a tiny sliver of the electromagnetic spectrum, only the portion that falls in between specific wavelengths at the visible spectrum of light that your eyes are attuned to. There are animals on this planet that see better than we do that are not as sophisticated as we are. So it's about being humble in the end. I fully agree with you. In fact, I would say science is its own religion. I love what Colin Bennett, who writes for UFO magazine, says. Colin Bennett writes and says, scientists are like the 19th century Victorian station masters. In other words, unless you conform to a very strict set of, of rules, you're not getting on the train. You're not getting your ticket punched. And scientists right. are like that. This guy, Magaha, is really funny. How can you tell these people you didn't see of course people get frustrated at somebody saying, well, no, you really didn't see that. Don't tell me what I didn't see. I or was I there, see. yeah. I mean, it was there. I mean, yes, there are certain kinds of witnesses where they can't describe what they see and say, oh, it's more of a feeling. And then they can say, well, you know what, it can be a lot of things. But the people on the Larry King show, their sisters that night, they knew what they saw. I they mean, Magaha's story... Reminds me, um, in the Canterbury Tales, there's this great, great story called The Merchant's Tale. And to make a long merchant's tale a very short tale, after this merchant is struck blind and his very young wife, who he purchases, um, is up in a tree with their young student servant um, engaging in an intimate sexual act, the gods in this tale give the merchant, I think his name is Aurelius, his vision back. 
and he looks up and his vision is back and he's so happy he sees his young wife who by the way he holds his hand on all the time so he's in the tree with them he sees them in this intimate sexual act and he's struck what are you doing that and the and the scholar convinces Aurelius he didn't really see what he saw because just getting his vision back he like hallucinated for a minute and um, no they were just up in the tree picking pears and that's kind of what these scientists who say to these observers you, uh, you didn't see what you saw your eyes were playing tricks on you you just looked up and it was an optical illusion I mean in some cases that's true I would say probably in the majority of cases that's true I'd even go that far but I would say there's a significant minority of cases a good number of cases where these people know exactly what they saw, precisely what they saw. They can't identify it. They can't say it's um, a time ship from the future. They can't say it's a beam ship from Venus. And they can't say that it's one of Billy Myers' Pleiadian ships. Yeah, they don't know. Okay, we don't want to mention right? the M word here, okay? Today, whether you're in business or simply want to share something with friends or family, email and voicemail sometimes just aren't enough. That's why you should try GoToMeeting, a web conferencing solution that will revolutionize how you communicate with your business associates, family, and friends. The ability to host online meetings is an absolute must for today's business. With GoToMeeting.com, it's just like you're all in the same room. Unlimited meetings for one flat rate means you can meet as often as you want for as long as you need. Try it yourself, free for 30 days. Just visit gotomeeting.com forward slash tech podcasts. That's gotomeeting.com forward slash tech podcasts. Try GoToMeeting free today. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. On the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, we have the return of Bill Burns after working for months and months on this TV series, UFO Hunters. And we're talking about kind of the background, not so much the episodes that will come over time as they announce the episodes. Then, of course, you can talk about it. But in the meantime, he was telling us about putting together the team and about all the ramifications thereof. So you, Right. Indeed. So there is one other factor, which I know that there's not much you can say about for very obvious reasons, but we learn, of course, that the History Channel has a show called UFO Hunters, and the Sci-Fi Channel, partly owned by the same company, has a show called UFO Hunters. So what gives? Well, um, I, I would love to be able to. And I think that, you know, I love someday. This is going to be one of the great textbook discussions. I mean, if I were writing a book on conflicting trademark claims, Apple Computers, Apple, and Sony Music's Apple, and those guys, and this would be just these fascinating cases where there is so much more beneath the surface that anybody blogging about it or writing about it just doesn't see because it, it goes far deeper. All I can say is this, that on the one hand, I'm not allowed to talk about it for a very specific reason. This is an issue of controversy between two major media corporations with two 
major law firms. And so the simple answer is it's beyond my pay grade. But the other answer is that there's really nothing I can say that'll explain anything because I really don't know myself all the issues. And so all I can say is that you've got Obviously, anybody, I'll tell you where to go to find out more information than I'm able to give. Anybody with a computer and an Internet connection can go to www.uspto.gov, which is the United States Trade and Patent Office. And were you to go to that patent office, and on that patent homepage, you will see uh, one of the options you have is, ser uh, is search for trademarks. You click on that prompt and you will get the um, TESS or I think that's the name of the um, search engine that they use and if you type in UFO hunters and make sure it's both singular and plural make sure it's live and dead and hit search or hit search query you will get a page that'll show you all the filings for not just the two shows in play, but all the fi MUFON also filed for UFO hunters. And if you click in the various columns, since we live in an open government world, you can see all the various claims, pleadings, responses, and what each company has said. And that will tell you more than I could possibly tell you for those, for, for anybody who wants to um, go through that venture. And if you need help in figuring out what each side is saying, there is a wonderful little NOLO book. I love NOLO. One of my law professors writes for, uh, wrote for them, or maybe she still writes for them. A, a NOLO book called Copyrights, Patents, and Trademarks. And you can get it at any bookstore, and that will give you all the language you need to be able to pluck your way through the various trademark filings and claims. It does seem kind of strange that I think it was the Sci-Fi Channel bill that moved the uh, the the premiere of the show to basically go head to head with the History Channel thing. I mean, is there? Do you feel there's that much of an audience that you can have two competing shows on the same time slot? I mean, I mean, you have UFO Magazine, so perhaps you have a biased view of this, but is there enough of an audience to support two shows on this? Well, the answer is it's not how big the, I mean, the answer that I can give is sometimes it's not how big the audience is, but it's the percentage of the audience that's there that counts. Hmm. So it's all demographics. It's the specific age groups that appeal most to certain advertisers that they want to capture. It's also, I mean, um, look, who blinks? I don't know. The fact is that whatever happens, it will be in the hands of people other than myself. Right. There are two lawyers. Uh, there are two teams of lawyers. There is the trademark examiner. Remember, a trademark, I can tell you one thing without going too far, since I file for trademarks all the time, as people know, who are in the blogosphere, at least my own companies, uh, not for UFO Magazine, because that's a separate company that was in existence long before, uh, that was in existence before I came aboard, and they were the ones that, that filed for the trademark and got it all the way back in 1998, 1999, renewed it back in 2000-ish, and they also are expanding their trademark. Again, it's not my trademark, it's their trademark, and um, expanding it out into other ventures uh, besides 
periodical magazines, which is one goods and service, which is one category of goods and services. Anybody, anybody who wants to know about trademarks, as I said, this is a great trademark book, copyrights, patents, and trademarks, should know that the process is anybody, you don't need a lawyer, you just need a credit card, can go to the U.S. Uh, Patent and Trademark Office, you can file for a patent application online, fill out the form, you just choose your name, and it's not, choosing a name is not all that simple, you can choose a word mark or an impression mark, a graphics mark, then you want to file for what category you want that mark to be in. For example, uh, and, and, the, and the trademark cannot be the thing itself. In other words, to use the language of the trademark office, it cannot be a, a descriptive trademark. So you can't say, I'm going to have an orange oranges because the description of the orange is the orange. You can't say, I'm going to call my Apple company Apple Apples. Can't do it, right? It has to be the trademark cannot be significant to the item itself. It has to be fanciful, like Xerox copiers, or Apple computers, or Sony Apple music, or the very first trademark, which was Bass Ale, the first trademark, uh, all the way back in England. So it cannot be significant, it cannot be descriptive, it cannot be meaning, uh, meaningful, it must be, it must be in, in a way, the best is fanciful, like Kodak film. What does Kodak mean? Who knows? Yeah, no, listen, we can go into the, I mean, this is, this is a, a whole nother show that I'm sure certain people would find out. This is going to be Court TV, but they renamed Court and, TV, okay, so I have no idea. Is, okay, but here's the gist. After you do all your filing, at the end of the day, in, in a six-month window, someone called a trademark examiner, who is an attorney who works for the trademark office, will come back, and that person, he or she, will tell you what you can and cannot do, what you can and cannot say, and what modifications, if any, you have to make to your trademark application, or if nothing, it's abandoned. Okay, let's so, let's move away from that's the trademark. The final arbiter. Okay, move away from the trademarks because it's just way over our heads, and I know that you are a PhD, so you can understand this. We just want to know about UFOs. Now, looking okay. looking in general here, now, will shows like this help people take the subject more seriously? You know, we have to look at different things. Networks want to sell spots. They want to get ratings. They're in business to make money. But people like you who've been covering the subject for many years, do you think this is going to really do it? The very short answer is yes, because I look at the Chicago O'Hare story and the Chicago Tribune. Uh, you all know that, just very briefly, what happened at O'Hare Airport in November of 2006, right? Yeah, absolutely. You'll tell me how much or how little you want me to say about this, but this was not a person looking for a UFO. It was a ground, it was a ground personnel on his little truck pushing a jet back from a gateway, from one of the gateways. I think it was United uh, an Airlines jet. And he's got to look, uh, and this person has to look up into the cockpit to make sure the pilot's hand, the engines have to be off, and the pilot's hands must be off the wheel of the throttle. In fact, the pilot's hands must be in plain view. So he looks up into the cockpit. He's in, uh, he's in communication with the pilots as he's pushing the jet back. He looks up through the cockpit windows, the windshield, and he sees, a, he sees an object, a circular object. And he phones the pilots. They phone the tower. Zahoma Gila. The point is this story, which is about ground safety, not about UFOs, reaches the desk of John Hilkovich, who's the travel reporter for the Chicago 
Chicago Tribune. Now, John Hilkovich, again, is not writing a UFO story. He writes about a funny incident. He calls the FAA, and again, it's the black hole of non-disclosure, right? Truth bends around the black hole of non-disclosure. Hilkovich calls the FAA. The FAA says, you're out of your mind. There is no story about a UFO. You're wrong. Well, Hilkovich is looking at the emails from United's ground safety crew, right, which must follow up by law on anything interfering with the gateway, and the FAA, and the witnesses who saw this thing. So Hilkovich says, I'm going to do a FOIA request. Oh, that UFO sighting. Oh, that funny thing. It's a big nothing. And they go in to admit that there was actually a traffic about a UFO. Hilkovich writes this in the Chicago Tribune. point that I'm trying to make is not that it, it's a UFO, it's that uh, this travel story, which involves a UFO, travel safety story, garners the Chicago Tribune one million hits on its website in the space of 24 hours, the largest single number of hits in the Chicago Trib's history, and every newspaper, Djokovic told me, I interviewed him for the magazine a year ago, every newspaper took note of that email traffic. Now, it is not CNN picks it up. Gary Tuckman picks it up. Glenn Beck picks it up. I know these guys because Gary Tuckman covers these things for the CNN. I know Glenn Beck because I interviewed him for again, your friend's autobiography talked out in USA. George Norrie, we interviewed uh, Glenn Beck, who's friend. So, I know I'm plugging books like crazy, but I'm very involved in this stuff. So anyway, we interview them, and they say, yeah, uh, this is great. This is, you know, we love UFO stories. I'll debunk them, I'll laugh at them, I'll be derisive. And then Larry King weighs in. Remember, Larry King does believe in the existence of UFOs. He's really pushing to get more of this out. He interviews Peter Jennings after the Jennings special. And Jennings says on the Larry King show, this is Jennings shortly before he dies from lung cancer. Jennings says, I fully believe in the existence of UFOs. And that ABC made me do balance. And he regretted, in some cases, um, calling Stan Friedman a promoter, which was an insult to, to poor Stan. But the fact is, I mean, he's not a promoter. And so even Jennings says he believes in, 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 in the viability of these stories. So every media outlet has taken a good, hard look that UFO stories sell because the overwhelming, I think it's like 90% now, believe in the existence of UFOs in the American public. So you're not really hiding anything anymore. So the answer to Gene's question is, I absolutely believe that these shows will move it along. In fact, Steve Bassett from uh, Paradigm, right, from, from the X-Conference, mm-hmm. Steve, Steve Bassett wrote me an email basically uh, saying a happy email saying, I congratulate everybody here because the fact that you're all doing UFO shows is going to move the process forward. And I can tell you something. When people see, without going into detail, some of the stuff we have, they will be blown away. Not because we have a UFO landing on screen. I mean, I think we will. But the fact is that because uh, of the kinds of people we're speaking to and the kinds of stories that are coming out and the kinds of politicians that are coming out. I mean, Parvi's Jafari story, Dubak's story, Bauer's story, Santa Maria, whoever that story about shooting at a UFO, all these things are, and this was at the press conference, are incredible stories. At the press conference, uh, Charles Halt, who has a long history, by the way, in the Air Force. Hold on, Bill, Bill. We're talking about the press conference that James Fox did. Correct. Uh, Okay, right. This is the second, because people get confused with the press conferences. This is the right. press okay. conference this is, this in November is James Fox. 2007. Right. Yes, this is Leslie Kane's CFI, right, the uh, for disclosure, the Project Disclosure, her, 
project disclosure, and uh, James Fox, uh, out of the blue, they assembled, along with Bernard Tournell and Roger Lear, who had a large part in this, assembled a lot of these pilots from around the world, and the stories of this press conference are absolutely overwhelming, especially Fife Symington's confession. I interviewed Fife Symington for the magazine. Especially Fife Symington's admission that that night he saw one of the Phoenix Lights. Bill, the problem with Fife Symington is he pissed in his own pool. When that incident happened, he played it down and he made a mockery of people who were going on record saying they had seen something that night. So I agree with you that it's important that he got up there. But this is, again, this is sort of indicative of the problem we have in discussing this topic, in that even a guy like Symington, who later admitted that he had seen the actual UFO that night, and it's important that we delineate in talking about the Phoenix Lights, that there was the, the infamous Lights video that you know Larry King continues to play, that that video is highly suspect. But... Indeed, there was an er the earlier event that evening of the huge dark triangular craft. Correct. There were two that is the, there sets. were two things or two sets. Right. But, but here's David, the thing. You think? Okay. Go ahead. No. Go, go ahead. I was going to ask you whether you thought that second set. I've always wondered about this, and I, and I was mm -hmm. interested in your take on this. You know what I'm going to say. Always, go ahead. Yeah. No, I always thought to myself, Gene, this is, you know, open it up. I always thought that second set of lights was more to give the government the plausibility of the, uh, 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 a plausible denial that, oh, you guys saw flare. Hey, listeners, did you know that Fate is the oldest and best-known publication on the paranormal? Well, since 1948, Fate has provided their readers with fascinating in-depth articles on subjects like psychics and spiritualists, ghosts and hauntings, UFOs and aliens, as well as readers' true personal mystical experiences. For under $20, you can keep up with all the latest information. To subscribe, call now at one 800 728 2730 or visit Fate's website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. So what are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. On the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, we have Bill Burns, one of the co-hosts of the new UFO Hunters TV show for the History Channel, publisher of UFO Magazine, Man About Town, who I don't want to say that because David doesn't like when I say that. But, okay, let us continue with this vein, David. Bill and Gene, I think you both know what I'm going to say about this. To me, it's absolutely obvious that the second event that evening was engineered to distract people from the earlier episode and to essentially discredit anybody who would have said something about the earlier episode that the government could then point to that second thing that was to me pretty obviously flares and jeff ritzman and i have talked a lot about this and jeff is convinced that we're dealing with flares that very possibly were brought down with parachuters that that was a distractionary episode that was engineered which, again, speaks to motive here. And I think that's really important that if we tear apart the facade of these things and we get behind the curtain, we start to see that 
indeed, there is an organized, orchestrated campaign of disinformation, and that's half the news right there. Why is that happening? So that Symington got involved in that whole thing and brought out his chief of staff, dressed up in the alien outfit, probably to cover his own ass because he was in a bunch of political trouble and IRS trouble. Yes, nobody's brought that up, David. Uh Nobody's brought up the fact that he was on his way to the pokey. That's right. And as a matter of fact, one of the reasons that he got out and was saved is because Bill Clinton pardoned him before he left office. Correct. To be fair to Gene, Gene is the one that informed me about Symington's legal problems when that all was going on. Gene, you're the one that told me, hey, you know, he's probably covering his own ass. Well, the thing is also you have to bear in mind that here in Arizona, we have political corruption up the kazoo. This is he's a second or third governor in the last couple of decades who's had problems with impeachment or legal problems. So it's not unusual. Gene, at the national uh, at the, the James Fox disclosure press conference last November, I I try when I asked the question, I was there for UFO magazine. I, you know, basically, said, you know, UFO magazine. I want to ask you. I asked five Symington. I was trying to phrase it as delicately as possible. Um, I didn't want to say, by the way, because you were going to jail, did you lie that night? What I asked him was, was there any external pressure on you from any source that would have directed you to do what you did at the press conference you gave by dressing yourself up as an alien? And he said, no, I don't think he was telling the truth. He said, no, what I was doing was trying to relieve the panic in that situation by having somebody stand up. But, I mean, the fact is, not only did he not relieve the panic, Gene, of that situation, he actually threw fuel on a fire. I mean, here you see something out your window, and instead of your governor standing up and saying, you know, I don't know what this is, and I really can't speak to something I don't know, but you better believe that I'm going to find out what it is, and I'll get back to you with a reasonable answer. That's the kind of political leadership that you want, right? Yeah. You don't oh, know what it is. You admit it. Yeah, yeah. But you oh. don't get up and make fun of people who are really seeing something. What's the point of that? There's no such thing as a bad joke. Well, it was irreprehensible what he did. And see, the, this is, again, the situation we, we find this whole topic uh, sort of mired down in, Bill, is that you've got what appears to be a, a very organized, very concerted effort to throw all of this stuff into serious doubt. When you bring up the O'Hare episode, uh, listeners of the Paracast and members of our forum know that the friend of the show, Jeff Ritzman, who's my close personal friend now, and, 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 and I, both contributed significantly to the NARCAP report that was issued about the O'Hare episode. And mind you, here's NARCAP producing a 248-page report, a deep, detailed report of what happened and did you see any press coverage of the release of that report? Nothing. At that point, the story was, was, was essentially stale. It was cold. So here is the real scientific report coming out, and it receives no media attention whatsoever because the collective memory of our society is, what, 24 hours, 36 hours? Anything yeah, that's the spin that. cycle. That's the spin. Yeah. Now, if that report had said that somebody was stealing money, having an intimate sexual relationship with uh, Britney Spears. somebody you shouldn't be having it with, or or, 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 or Britney Spears shows up without her underwear, then it would be a headline right. story. Right. Then, then it would be headlines all over the place. Terrible. Just terrible. But then the other part of this, that because we were talking about the Arizona lights, you know, we had Lynn Kitai on the show. We had her come on and we had her talk. And Lynn 
saw the later stuff. She didn't see the earlier episode. She saw the later episode and then went on to, I'm going to write books. I'm going to make a documentary. I'm going to talk about how this is life changing. The Space Brothers here to save us, blah, blah, blah. And you have people that grab these things and then spin the hell out of them to their own personal advantage. Because then later on, we had a wonderful fellow, Mike Fortson, who was a direct witness of the earlier event that night. Right. I, I know who Mike Fortson you know is. Yes. Is. And he yes. came on and talked to us. And, and, you know, he was frustrated, saying, you know, here and he had been involved to some extent with Lynn Kitai and said, you know, she made it all about her. And this is a, a, a recurring thing we see in this topic where people grab a hold of a little bit and they fly with it. Another person we had on the show a while ago who I've come to absolutely detest is David Sarita. Another guy who, and every time Fox, well, not every time, but often when Fox has to have a pro-UFO voice, they get Sarita on. And Sarita is an asshat. I'm saying it on the show right now, Gene. Don't edit this out. He's, he's, I'll tell you he's, what, I'll tell you what, oh, David. You're, you're, let me what? just ask you the question. You're saying here, David, that... yeah. David Sarita is an asshat, right? Correct. And yes. you're asking me whether I should remove the phrase you're David Sarita is an asshat. Is that correct, sir? That's you, you won't be removing it now because we have it in like three or four times. But here's the point. Would you like to say it's it like, again? No. I want to make the point. Even though people think they're doing this topic a, 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 some kind of a service by talking about it, when they bring their, their own personal junk into the conversation, which, of course, is probably what some listeners are thinking right now about me putting people down. Don't put them down. They're part of the community. They're trying to make they're trying to create public awareness of this. You know, we all have to work together now on a certain level. I understand that. At another level, it's like, look, we have to cut the crap away. If we're going to ever get an understanding of this, we have to take the marginal voices and just essentially put them where they belong, not at the foreground of this. And, and this, this ties into, Bill, something I was talking about with you offline, something we brought up, which is that we at this point have to try to take the whole situation and move it to a point where we can have reasonable discussions about the fact that there is something going on. Do we know what it is? No, we don't. We have to decouple the term UFO from extraterrestrial if we're going to ever move this forward. We oh, must... I totally agree with that. Right? I, I mean, totally that... agree with that. How do we do that? Well, I mean, that's one of the $64,000 questions, and in this recessionary time, that would get to mean more. But, no, it's true. That's an issue. And the answer, I wish I could give you the protocol for doing so. Now, Nick Pope who um, we interviewed for the magazine and, 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 and who's a friend, said that when the MOD contracted out to do a study of the kinds of strange phenomena, UFO phenomena in its own files, they preferred to use the phrase unexplained aerial phenomena because UFO had all the trappings of uh, George Adamski and the ships from Venus and all this stuff. In other words, UFO semantically had come to mean flying saucers when really it does not mean flying saucers. And when you listen to Stanton on the air, Stan will actually make that distinction between a flying saucer, which he 
says is, you know, stands right as a flying saucer. That's what came down in Roswell. It wasn't a UFO because we know what it was. It wasn't identified. It was a flying saucer. So he makes that logical split saying a UFO is what you don't know. A flying saucer is what you do think you know because the evidence is there. We're not going to argue about Roswell right now, but the point is just for semantic purposes, that's what Stanton does. So at least one person is making that kind of a distinction on the flying saucer side and on the unexplained side, you've got Nick Pope and the MOD calling them UAPs. You know what? There was another phrase, Bill, that was used some years back, which was UAO, Unidentified Aerial Object. That was APRO. Coral and Jim Lorenzen used that phrase many, many years ago, but it didn't stick. That was the problem. Well, it didn't stick because, because let's just say, uh, and this comes out of discussions all the time, you may not be able to identify it. So you've got something unidentified. In other words, you, you can't explain it, so it's unexplainable, right? We'll give you the unexplainable, that's a gimme. It looks like it's in the air, so we don't know that it's flying, because flying means some kind of a powered flight or a flight under some conditions. But you don't know that it's flying. You just know that it's in the air. So take away the flying and you've got aerial. Now you don't know it's an object, right? I mean, you don't know it's an object. It could be anything. It could be a beam of light. So it's a phenomenon. So hence the term unexplained aerial phenomenon, which they used in the U.K., and which I know Leslie Kane wanted everyone to use at her news conference in November at the National Press Club. Don't call them UFOs because it's not about UFOs. And, of course, every pilot stood up and said the word UFO, so that that was the end of that one. UFOs have negative baggage, Dave. You're right. And UFOs have the smack of flying saucers, and so people try to get away from using UFOs. They're not going to say flying saucers because that's too 1950-ish, too Kenneth Arnold-ish, but they'll say uh, UFOs. So that's why... We can't, in the unexplained phenomenon community, we can't even agree on a common terminology. And when you do, and you know this, when you do, it's like reading a documentation manual for something that Microsoft just put out. It is deadly dull. People want good stuff that they can really sink their teeth into and wrench around and get excited over, and sometimes the scholarly reasoned report just puts people to sleep, although it is what's in the scholarly reasonable report that contains sometimes more phenomenal information than in all the hoopla surrounding the event itself, and that's where, David, you're right. Well, they want the Reader's Digest version also. That makes it difficult. You need to have everything reduced to a 20-second soundbite, and that can be too long. You know, it's got to be the lead story on the local news, on the national news, cable news, whatever. It makes it very, very difficult to get really detailed scientific information across. Now, obviously, if you're doing a documentary kind of show like you're doing, you have more freedom to provide more detail. And I hope it certainly gains traction. But that raises another discussion here, which is the question of disclosure. And who are we asking about disclosure? Are we asking the government? Do they know anything they can give us? Is it some kind of super government, a silence group, Illuminati? Who has the secret of UFOs? Or does anyone have the secret of UFOs? Or is it just the revelation? We don't know. Well, I mean, if you're asking me, uh, I would say something that I've said before in the magazine – 
and is after Roswell, which is that, I Phil Corso said it too, if you believe him or not, is that there really is no such thing as a monolithic United States government. It just doesn't exist. And that is more of a myth than the myth of extraterrestrials and Venus. I mean, even the president can't control the stupid thing. It is a bureaucracy that lumbers under its own weight, usually by inertia. It is a bureaucracy in which the people at the civil service levels really can't get fired except for cause, and at the higher levels can get fired at the pleasure of the president or a cabinet secretary. And as both of you know, and I know, and most of our listeners, if they don't know it, they will soon find out. You don't get fired for something you don't do. In other words, if you don't make a decision, you stand a greater chance of keeping your job than if you do make a decision, even if it's the right decision. Because nobody in a bureaucracy likes a person to make a decision and take ownership of something, even after you have the 17,000 encounter groups that I'm sure you've all been at, the 17,000 encounter groups where you basically cry on each other's shoulders and learn to take ownership of something, right? You just read all the management books out there, you know, TQM, everything else, and it's about taking ownership and taking ownership. The president takes ownership, usually wants it getting fired and is, and is you know, on unemployment. So, you know, it's the old Bobby Morse thing from, um, right. from how to succeed in business without really trying when he says, I've got a hot idea, and the guy in the head of the mailroom says, I've gotten along in this company for 40 years. I never had an idea. Don't have any ideas. Yeah. How do you expect the government to disclose anything? Who's going to disclose? Well, it comes down to that when you say ownership, I, I think of it with the classic word, responsibility. We are a society where nobody wants to take responsibility for a damn thing. Everybody pays lip service, but the idea of actually stepping up to the plate and taking responsibility for one's actions, for just one's own actions, is something people won't do. It's going to bring the society down, guys. Hey, you know, I want to tell you something. I want to take responsibility for something right now. And you know what that is? That part one of the Paracast is up, and we'll resume with part two with Bill Burns, co-host of UFO Hunters for the History Channel and publisher of UFO Magazine at the other end of this hour. to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene in data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. On the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, we're talking to Bill Burns, one of the co-hosts of the UFO Hunters TV show for the History Channel. You'll have to check the listings in your area and your cable or satellite network to see when that's going to appear. Also publisher of UFO Magazine, but I gather that Nancy Burns has been doing most of the work on UFO Magazine because you've been all over the country and all over the world covering UFO incidents with your fellow co-hosts, right? Well, Nancy Burns does 
most of the work on UFO magazine to begin with. Um, she's the editor-in-chief, um, and I was handling all the subscriptions. I mean, after, after Pat got his full-time job, I was handling all the subscriptions after Pat. And uh, now that I'm doing this, and I've got like really four manuscripts that I've got to finish at the same time, Nancy's doing everything. And it's a hard job, and she's, she's really overworked. But the fact is she really keeps the magazine fresh with each issue, and that's, that's what's so exciting, that she's able to do that and is just sitting on literally probably 150 new UFO cases. I mean, there's a UFO invasion off the coast of New Jersey, according to one of our one person who's been writing us and sending us photographs. There are some phenomenal stories of aliens at the U.S. Naval Base in Puerto Rico. True, not true, don't know. Uh, but the point is it's something we're going to investigate. And obviously, um, she's been on t- uh, with Jim Morris, who's uh, written the article for us in an upcoming issue on the sightings in Stevensville, Texas. So, uh, yeah, she's been doing the most of the work and uh, all the work, really. And the magazine is her baby now until we finish this round of shooting. By the way, that's an important question. Have you had a chance to do any exploration yet of the sightings in Texas, or it's too pretty Yes, true? we have. Okay. Yes, we have. I mean, it's kind of interesting. The person doing the exploration for us is our old friend, obviously, the guy who wanted to wrote one of the major Kennedy assassination books and one of the major books on remote viewing, Alien Agenda. That's Jim Mars. And Jim just wrote an article for UFO Magazine on it, and it's coming out this month, lastly in February, the issue. And the fact is, these people saw what they saw. What's so astounding about the Stevensville, and I can, I can again, I, I'm trying to be balanced, right? But balanced from a UFO perspective, not balanced from a skeptical pers- uh, perspective. The Air Force says we have no planes in the sky, nothing's going on. Whatever these people see, they see. Don't ask us. Call the National UFO Reporting Center. So what these people do, and they go to Peter Davenport, and Davenport logs it, writes it down, puts it up, does his interviews, doesn't make a decision, but basically says this is a sighting report. Then suddenly the news media latch on. Now this is where the news media do love to focus on a hot new sighting. This is a hot new sighting. A bunch of people see it. A pilot down there says, I've been a pilot for ever since Orville Wright flew his plane. No, he's saying, I've been a pilot for many, many years. I have thousands of hours in the air, and I will tell you this was no plane. Not a jet plane, not a prop plane, not an F-16, not a F-22 Raptor. It was not that at all. Bingo, the Air Force Base near Stevensville says, you know what? I know we said we have no planes out that night, but we just realized we had planes out that night. You could say, oh, there they go, the Air Force. But on the other hand, and I don't know how big the other hand is, the Air Force, just like the RAF, just like the French Air Force, will not announce to the public what they're flying, where they're flying it, and when they're flying it. They just don't do that, whether it's terrorism, 9-11, whether the military keeps its big mouth shut all the time, I don't know. But it's the same thing as you were saying before, David. If the government doesn't have to tell you something, departments of the government, because there is no government, departments of the government won't tell you, because why should they? What's in it for them? Mm -hmm. Government exists for itself. The whole nature of bureaucracy is self-perpetuation. Change 
is deadly. So resistance is futile. And they will just not tell you anything. They, the bureaucracy stays in place. The Social Services Administration will not tell the Housing Administration, will not tell the Centers for Disease Control, will not tell the United States Army, will not tell the State Department. Okay? Pardon. It's like all yes. these little mini bureaus, each fighting for its own piece of your wallet. And why should they tell anybody anything? You know, why have the accountability? So as a result, the Air Force won't announce when its flights are, but suddenly says, oh, well, to dispel public concern over these sightings, we will tell you we're flying some planes. Well, that should make the whole thing disappear because the Air Force is finally deigned to say something. Well, it didn't make it disappear. A lot of people said, oh, thanks, Daddy, for telling us the truth. We can now go back to watching our television sets. You should excuse the expression. I don't mean to insult television since I'm on it. But some people say, no, that's not good enough, so we'll find out. Jim did a good article. We're going to get down there and, and interview the witnesses um, for the magazine and uh, follow up on Jim's story. Well, if the witnesses, or at least some of the witnesses, are to be believed, and they're describing something thousands of feet in length, gee, I don't know of anything we have thousands of feet of length in the water, much less the air. So That's right. Uh, that falls right apart. I know what I saw in 1974 in Caracas, Venezuela, was thousands of feet long. We didn't have anything that size then in the air. I'd be willing to stake everything that I am that today, no matter what secrecy the government is employing to keep stuff covered up, we have no technology that involves a craft, a structured craft, thousands of feet long, in the air with no sound. I do not in any way buy that. And I think most people who see one of these things, when they see it, they understand the gravity, no pun intended, of something that size. And th this is where, Bill, I've described this thing that happens in one's mind that I've gotten a lot of email from our listeners who say, you understand, we know you've seen something because you you've described this feeling exactly. When your eyes are seeing something and your brain is saying to the eyes, uh, no, there's no way, there's that can't be, uh-uh, no. There's nothing that size that we have, oh, no. And you get this sense of adrenaline in you when there's this hardcore realization that you are seeing something that what is it? We don't know. Is it one of ours? Not a chance. You know, David, you were talking before about responsibility and accountability. Yeah. And, of course, Bill is talking about the way the government works, which is, of course, nobody wants to be responsible for anything. You just want to keep your job. And you've got millions of bureaucrats who are busy keeping their jobs and nothing really gets done. And there's all this inertia. So we come down to the point, is it going to be like the movie, the original Raiders of the Lost Ark, where the secret of UFOs is stuck somewhere in a dusty warehouse? I mean, no. people no. are... We're talking about disclosure. Who is going to disclose anything to us? Who do we go to? I think documents themselves, and I'm not saying the MJ-12 documents are real, hoaxes, falses, I don't know. But what I am saying is that there are other document trails that are noted for their absence of disclosure. I mean, I've said this a few times, is that when you have this nexus of non-disclosure, let's say this nexus of lies, Truth bends around the event horizon of a lie, just like light bends around the event horizon of a black hole. You really can't see the black hole. All you see is light bending around it. You really don't know the truth of the lie except to know a lie is there because of the gyrations and the contortions people in official positions go to cover it up. So, um, yes, that was a real event that Fife Symington saw because of what he did to cover up the reality of 
leave that event on that night. Nobody does something that stupid um, unless there's something to be really stupid about, okay? That's first of all. When you look at these little bits and pieces of government documents that do refer to UFOs in our own government, in our own government, I mean, here's the thing in the, in the first edition of the Fawcett and Greenwood book, there is an entire section in that book from a firefighter's manual on what to do when encountering a UFO. There are field manuals that were distributed to our soldiers about what to do about a UFO to encounter a UFO. There are studies. Why would you commission the RAND Commission? Why would you commission RAND? Why would you ask them to do a study on something that doesn't exist, right? The RAND report on UFOs. <laughs> well, you know, of course, Why? Donald Kehoe went through this yes. in the 50s. He would find all these documents and he'd say, hey, why do we have documents here that describe what to do, how to handle UFO reports if there's no such thing to it? Why would you have this? Precisely. That's what I'm getting to. Then you've got the letter from the Air Force to um, Condon on the Condon Commission directing him as a favor, pleased to say that UFOs are not real, they don't exist, it's all explained by conventional phenomena, so as to get the Air Force out of the UFO Project Blue Book business when everyone else on the commission is saying we really should investigate this. Nobody is saying these things come from a distant planet, they're extraterrestrials, we've been invaded, etc., etc. All they're saying is we can't explain this, there's something there, we need to devote some resources to it, while government is saying, no, don't divert any resources to it. This doesn't merit resources. So when you see somebody actively directing you away from some kind of a phenomenon that scientists are saying, you, you, gotta, you should look at this, this is not explained. Oh, no, don't bother to explain it. It doesn't exist. That's how I know there's some way. This is what I saw. This is how I know that something is there. Okay? I can't tell you what it is, but I know that somebody somewhere not only probably knows what it is, but knows what people shouldn't know about it, and therefore doesn't want attention going that way. To go back now to kind of cut this short, because we only have 45 minutes left, and I know that we can do a 12-hour show here. Let's go back to your friend, the late Philip Corbett. Or so now, yeah. more recently, from the times that you were on the show, David and I got to see the segment they recorded of him in that James Fox documentary, Out of the Blue. Right now, the guy, a lot of people were saying, "Well, this guy was sick and old and senile," and I didn't see that on that show. I saw a straight shooter. Obviously, this is the bearing of a retired military officer who knew exactly what he was saying, when he was saying it, and everything else. So it comes back to the same thing. So many people in the UFO field that you and I know about disparage the story of Philip Corso. Some say, well, he made this all up at the end of his life to make money for his children, which seems kind of preposterous from the scheme of things, but okay. Or they point to errors in the book where certain things were not described properly, his particular positions in government, and they use that as evidence that it couldn't have happened. And maybe right. we should kind of resurrect that subject very briefly because of that, sure, because we're I'll talking about what the to. government knows. So, sure. again, there were errors in the book. Who made those errors? 
I did. I mean, this is what really got me. I mean, Richard Dolan was on it. I was really furious when uh, when I heard that because the fact is, Dolan had no concept of how that book was put together. I mean, this is where I really had to question what he was doing and saying because he's arguing from absolute ignorance. First of all, I was there that night, that film that James Fox has an Out of the Blue. James Fox didn't take it, so let's get that out of the way fast. I was sitting right next to Phil that night. It was recorded in a hotel room at the Roswell Inn at the 50th anniversary of Roswell. Okay, It was the, it was the weekend that the, the book was being released by Pocket Books. So, you're, so this is the source, because I was there. I'm sitting next to him. The, the film was taken by Michael Linderman, not by James Fox. And Fox got Linderman's film. I know James. James is a friend. I have absolutely no bones to pick with James Fox, and I'm telling you where the film came from. Okay? Mm-hmm. Corso was already dying when he was at Roswell in 1990. You can get his son on. He can confirm that story. As early as 1996, late 95, early 96, he had a catastrophic hemorrhage. And I mean catastrophic hemorrhage. His diaphragm, and this had been a kind of a chronic problem he had. And again, you're talking to the person who knew Corso outside of his son probably better than anybody. Uh, we were on the phone for hours a day. Phil was flying out to Los Angeles. We were telling him, don't fly, for God's sakes. You are sick. You're on medication. He says, don't tell me what I can and can't do. You know, this gruff voice, what I can and can't do. I'm doing a damn place. And, don't you? and so that, that was Phil, okay? He would fly out. And um, he was telling me, I mean, he told me he was dying. He said he was very sick. His diaphragm had rolled up against his lungs. And on the plane flying back, we were in Colorado. And on the plane flying back from Colorado, he began to hemorrhage. They took him off the plane. A doctor really did surgery, reached inside and rolled down his diaphragm. And that's what saved his life. So he was hemorrhaging. He was on, he was on blood medication. <laughs> Ray Perkins, a reclusive veteran burned out from the Gulf War, lives tortured by relentless, perplexing nightmares. Nightmares of a horrific battle in deep space and of a mysterious woman suffering in agony for her devastated world. A woman not yet born, calling across centuries to him. Then, a coincidence leads him to his destiny, his chance to alter the universe. Attack! Attack! of the Rockwells. The former fiction editor for Star Wars and Indiana Jones, Robert Simpson, writes, The soul of the novel Attack of the Rockoids lies in its heart and passion for building a convincing tale of a love that spans the galaxy. A thrilling story. Attack of the Rockoids is available now. Read a sample chapter and get a special discount off of the cover price at our website, rockoids.com. That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S dot com. Attack! Attack! of the Rockwell, a novel in the grand science fiction tradition. This is The Paracast, with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. You never know what's going to happen next. On The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, we have Bill Burns, one of the UFO hunters from the History Channel, of course, publisher of UFO Magazine. Okay, so they performed the operation on Corso. They performed the operation and they saved his life, okay? So Phil was measuring his life at that point in months. 
Uh, his, he told me that. He was very specific about that. And he was, but he was sharp. I mean, you saw a guy on camera who was sharp. He took his meds. You saw a guy on camera who was sharp. The day after Roswell Manuscript, as the deadline, which was an unbelievable, Gene, you write books, okay? Richard Dolan has the, has the uh, complete freedom to write a book on his own schedule because he's publishing it at Keyhole Press. I salute him for his valiant research. However, when you get into the professional big time, and I mean the Simon & Schuster's, the Harper Collins, the Warner Books, the Whole Spring Publishing, plug, 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 when you do that, you find that you are penguin. You find that you are under a strict deadline. We have to get this book out, printed, on the stands before the end of June 1997. So it was in the Barnes & Noble, the books a million by the time uh, we were in Roswell. It was an unbelievable, and I'm telling you, I had four different sets of Phil Corso notes to work from because he wrote up notes. He had a very scribbly handwriting. Four sets of notes to work from, each of which were corrected over corrections. So there was a dot matrix where he'd pull together a lot of material, then um, he'd handwritten uh, uh, corrections. So the big thing was, was it a bear bomber or a badger bomber or a this bomber? There were like three things there. And I know that was partly because he was trying to correct himself. When the time came to read the, let's call it the A version of the manuscript, because there were only four or five, the A version of the manuscripts, he read it, he made corrections, we sent it back, it went to the editor. The copy editor made other corrections. Again, it's nice to have the, the, uh, the luxury of taking years to do a book. In this particular case, it was months to do a book, and you're working through four levels of editing. There's a line editor, a developmental editor, a copy editor, and a proofreader. Hello, this is the big time. This is what happens when you do books. I'm so pissed at Dolan. This is what happens when you do books, right? So each copy editor that was doing it went and researched and, and, and came back with a different level of research on these items. So we had three or four different levels of correction. At a certain point, the book had to go to press. So I flew to Florida, sat down with Phil, who drove for like 90 miles an hour on his Pontiac Thunderbird, wherever he was driving. So he was worn out, drives across Florida. We're in a hotel room. We have to turn the air conditioning down to zero. And he's reading this manuscript in one day so I can put it in my briefcase and take it back up to New York for the following day. His eyes were shot. His health was shot. He wasn't feeling well at all, but he did it. And he said, you know what? If there are mistakes, don't worry. We'll correct it. Maybe a second edition. Who knew it would be three editions before the printing presses stopped? We didn't know that, right? So that's how a lot of those errors crept in there. Uh, blame me if you want to, but it was the result of a very rushed working from different manuscripts and different copy editors and different versions. And, of course, Phil himself had the last run-through, but he just was too tired and worn out and, and on medications to make the kinds of detailed editorial corrections that one had to do to come up with a manuscript. Um, we all believed there'd be a second edition of the book, there'd be a corrigenda, and we would correct the edit. That's the truth of why there are errors in that. So don't blame Phil. If you have to blame me, um, he's dead, I'm alive, I'll ride the beef. But the point is, and I'm not being cavalier about it, I'm saying this is exactly what happened. So also, 
Phil was in a deal with a movie company, not with me. So for all the blue resident aliens out there who said, really, I was in charge of uh, Phil, and I wasn't. There was a movie company that was kind of super over both of us. What happened after that was that there was a big fight between, and I'm not going to get into the details of it because you don't have 12 hours to do this. There was a major fight between over a term of a contract. Okay, I'm not going to say who was right and who was wrong. I think I know from knowing contracts, obviously. Uh, I have a JD. I know contracts. From knowing contracts, I, I could make a decision and render what a judge would say, but I'm not going to do that. All I'm going to say was that it was a dispute between Phil believed that the movie company did not have the rights to sequel books that did not cover his life in the military, okay? That the sequel book only covered his life in the military. The motion picture company believed that they had a sequel clause for any other book. The next book that was we sold the rights to to Simon & Schuster, never published, was The Day After Dallas. Okay, the Kennedy assassination, of course, his role in the Warren Commission. Yes, he had that role in the Warren Commission. It's a devastating book. Brilliant. I mean, in terms of the disclosures in it. But what happened was that Phil said, no, you can't publish this because you don't have the rights to it. And if you want it, I want X much money. And the movie company said, no, you signed a life story rights contract. Life story rights means life story rights. Basically, Phil sued. They countersued. There was a, a really a quick, dirty bloodbath lawsuit. The result was that uh, the federal court threw out the lawsuit Corso filed on basis of jurisdiction, not on its merits. The movie company sued him. Phil Corso died a few months later. Off went into a settlement. Uh, the Day After Dallas never came out because the author had deceased, so they didn't want to publish the book. And um, But during the course of the lawsuits, the errors in that original Day After Roswell, nobody corrected them because, as what I said, nobody took ownership of the book. I couldn't correct them. The publisher wanted any corrections. Phil wasn't about to make any corrections. I wasn't going to change a manuscript with his name on it without his permission. He was angry at the movie company. So as a result, it just basically fell right into the middle of everybody not holding out their hands like a fly ball. And sure enough, the errors crept in. And the book is still in print. It's in like in its 10th or 12th printing in paperback. Same errors are still. Nobody's touched the manuscript. That's what happened. And that's what happens when you have a situation like this. So that explains the errors. That explains why the errors are not corrected. There is no editor now at the publisher for that book. So even if I wanted to correct the errors at this late stage, I really couldn't because nobody's willing to put money into reprinting the book. That's that. As for the film footage of Corso in uh, James Fox's movie, yes, he was sharp. He was feisty that night. He was going to fight anybody who came into that room. I'm sitting right there next to him. Anybody who wants can see the entire footage because it's been around, and you'll see me sitting next to him. He was in a fighting mood, really mad, because um, somebody had challenged him on a couple of things in the book, and he was he was loaded for bear. He was angry because he'd given a news conference that day, and a couple of people walked out who hadn't taken the time to listen to him explain something. They just walked out in a huff at the second word, like, we know what's going on, and they stomped out. He was furious at that. And when he's in a fighting mood, when he was, poor guy, when, uh, when he was in a fighting mood, he was just 
brutal. I mean, this guy had been a Washington insider ever since he he um, came back to the Pentagon from the Maryland National Guard in 1960. This guy fought a lot of battles inside the Pentagon and fought a lot of battles when he was on the national security staff, not the council, but the staff. Uh, Peter Grissom and I had it to do about that um, at the White House under President Eisenhower, and so that's that. But that's why he was sharp that night. That's how the errors uh, were in the book. Um, and the fact that to criticize it and say, oh, had I done this book, there wouldn't be errors, you have no idea how the book was written. So it's what a statement to make had I been there. The movie company never hired me to vet Corso. This was a straight-out bill. Do you think you can write a book on this? Yes. I went to my editor, my existing editor for Riverman and Signature Killers at Pocketbooks, Chris Coburn, and he said, absolutely, we love the book on one and only one condition. Because UFO books need something that makes them sell like a UFO landing, the publishers will only publish this book, or editorial director will only publish this book if it can come out in time for Roswell. You put your personal stake on getting this book out before July 1st, 1997, and we will do it. This is basically in the middle of 1996, and this is a long book about the CIA and U.S. military intelligence and the KGB penetration of the CIA, all amidst the Roswell landing and what happened after that landing, and it's in that context that this book was coming out, and I defy anybody to be able to write a book under those conditions for the motion picture company with three levels of vetting. So I couldn't even vet Corso had I wanted to because Corso didn't even own the book. The book had been sold in advance to the motion picture company who bought his life story right. 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 So, the so, option. so Bill, let me ask a question on the part of our listeners all right, mm -hmm. who are hearing this and they say, okay, so name the top two errors that people identified and Make the corrections now on the air if you care to. Think about it. If you have, let's say, people are questioning the veracity of Corso statements because of, let's say, a number of errors. If you have the opportunity, like you have right now, to address, okay. let's say... Actually, I can only do, let's see, there was one error that had to do with this person, Wisner. Okay, and I don't remember what the right answer is. Okay, it's been it's been ten years, and I don't remember. It was Corso mentioned something about saying something to Wisner, and Wisner was dead, and it was actually somebody else that he meant. And if I say Angleton, um, speaking from a real faulty memory, I don't remember. The one error I do remember very clearly is that the difference between a bear bomber and a badger bomber. Two names for a Soviet bomber, and I think I have the wrong name because both names were in different versions of the manuscript. I think it was a Badger, not a bear. Hi, this is Timothy Green Beckley, otherwise known as Mr. UFO, reporting live for the Conspiracy Journal. And we have a special offer to the listeners of the Paracast. Want to receive our publications for free? Conspiracy Journal and Bizarre Bizarre sent to you via snail mail. And all you have to do is email me at MrUFO at WebTV.net. That's MRUFO at WebTV.net, and we'll send you two of the most exciting publications. But we do need your actual address because these are physical publications, and you'll enjoy all the latest articles by some of the leading researchers in the field, as well as up-to-date information on the latest 
book and videos, and it's all for free. Or drop us a line, Mr. UFO at webtv.net. Hey there, listeners. Have you ever thought about hosting your website? You know where you can actually host your blog or your web page? Well, I'll tell you where to go. Host I can. Host I can. And as a matter of fact, they provide all our hosting, too, for this site. And guess what? Their price starts at only $7 a month. How could you go wrong? It's reliability, and speed speaks for itself. And that's why we're able to provide you with this radio show that you're listening to right now. It's Host I Can. Give them a try. You'll be glad you did. To learn more about Host I Can, go to this website, techbroadcasting.com. That's techbroadcasting.com slash host. Techbroadcasting.com slash host. And you'll learn more about Host I Can. Entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. On the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, Bill Burns, co-host of UFO Hunters, the History Channel TV series, publisher of UFO Magazine. We're talking about the day after the day after Roswell book because it was such a significant volume for its time. And some of the mistakes, of course, identifying his particular position in national security for President Eisenhower. That was another significant error. And, of course, they use these arguments as ammunition to say, well, if that's the case and he didn't identify these things correctly and these errors, how could the book possibly have had these errors? He couldn't be telling us the truth. Of course, well, let me, uh, well, let me correct this thing real fast. Sure. Corso did never said in the book he was on the National Security Council. That came out of an affidavit that he uh, signed, he affirmed, okay, he, he ratified it by a signature that Peter Gersten drew up. And the fact is, the affidavit was false on its face. It was false on its face because in the book, Corso says he was a staff member at Eisenhower's White House, a military liaison to the National Security Council. So that was accurate. He was never on the National Security Council. He was a staffer. That's all he was. And in the Gersten drawn affidavit, it says a member of the National Security Council. Well, Stanton jumped on it and said it shows the course I was lying. He perjured himself by signing the affidavit. Now, to Peter Gersten's credit, Okay, this is a credit to Peter Gersten. He offered Corso the chance to change his signature. Corso, I'll say this again, Corso was in the final weeks of his life. He was not competent. And here's my argument. He's in the final weeks of his life. He is on serious pain medication. He is suffering from a cardiac condition. He was physically and probably mentally, because of the effects of the pain medication, he, he was incompetent to sign an affidavit. So if somebody says to me on the air, 
Corso signed an affidavit and lied, I would say that any lawyer would say, any attorney would say, if you are incompetent to sign that affidavit because of medical reasons, which is the case of Corso, the affidavit does not stand. Corso did not purge himself because the affidavit is void as a matter of law. Therefore, it's out the window. So I would challenge anyone saying that Corso's thing on the affidavit constitutes perjury. Uh, Anybody reading Dr. Razo would know that Corso never said he was on the National Security Council. Completely unrelated question about a complete different person, but what you just said, Bill, can we potentially apply that to the situation with Walter Hawk and the affidavit that he signed that it turns out that he didn't draw up? Great question, David, and the answer is no, we can't apply it. And again, I'll, I'll tell you why. First of all, Don Schmidt has explained, uh, and Don got mad at me for this, for disclosing the affidavit, uh, when I disclosed it at the Culture of Contact conference, and he was mad, the publisher was mad, and, but you know, I had told the publisher exactly what I was going to do, and they said, go ahead and do it. But no, because the affidavit was written in 2002, and Walter Hout died, I think, in 2005, I believe, and they sat on it for another year, it was 2006, and they saw it, but the point is, one, he was not dying. What he was doing is losing his memory. In the law of affidavits, right. okay, especially affidavits that are signed, affirmed, drawn in contemplation of one's own death, which is what this was, you sometimes, the law will allow you, if you are looking for the very question you asked, is this person competent to draft an affidavit and affirm it, which is your question, what kinds of extrinsic evidence, normally in any kind of testimonial statement, a deathbed testimonial statement, the court will only look at the four corners of the statement. That is, what's on the paper is what counts and nothing else. So if John Jones comes in or Jane Jones comes in and says, you can't take this to court, he really left me a million dollars, he told me this himself, and here's, you know, well, the court's going to throw it out, i.e. the whole business with the man Nicole Smith and Frank Marshall, and the court will throw it out, because in the law of wills and affidavits and testaments and things like that, a court will look at the four corners, that is what's inside the statement itself, except where there's a dispute over someone's competency, mental capacity to have made that statement, a court will, under some conditions, look at what's called extrinsic evidence. And extrinsic evidence is evidence surrounding the document that tends to affirm or disaffirm what the person signing that affidavit, called an affiant, what the affiant wrote. In this case, there is much extrinsic evidence to support what Walter Hout wrote. What is that extrinsic evidence? The extrinsic evidence is that Dennis Ballfazer, your guest, my friend, my writer, Dennis mm -hmm. Ballfazer, and Wendy Connor overheard Walter talking to a group of veterans at a French film crew and telling that crew, yes, he had witnessed bodies at Roswell and had been to the crash site. He said that. Now, this was a secret he was keeping, but he said it to them when Ballfazer heard it. And when he caught it, they walked out of the museum, looked at each other, and decided, we've got to get this on film. And so they basically asked Walter, and here's where there's another big argument between Julie Schuster at the museum, his daughter, Don Schmidt, everybody. And even Stanton weighed in on this, too, because they had interviewed Thomas DuBose, and DuBose basically didn't tell him what Walter said. And he was at the same meeting with Walter. Ballfazer and Connor went to Walter and said, well, can we do 
tell a story about a retrospective on your military career. Now, here's where you can get different stories. Dennis said they never really said, oh, we want to really get into this Roswell business and tear it out of you. And Wendy did say that she'd mentioned that she wanted to talk about Roswell. So on the video, Walter does something really strange. He begins by admitting that he saw bodies. You see him on the video turning away, looking down. He's on the spot. And of course the museum was furious at this. He's turning away. He's on the spot. He's, he's under cross-examination, but he admits to having seen the alien bodies at Roswell. He admits there was a crash. Then, in that same video, and Tom Carey talks about this, in our interview for the magazine, he talked about this, and of course he wrote the book with Don Schmidt, The Witnesses to Roswell. Tom Carey says in the video, and you can see it in the video, Walter does a total 180 and says nothing happened. So you've got two statements, one saying something happened, then a denial that something happened. But it gets more intense. Carolyn Siska at the museum not only heard Walter tell a veterans group that he saw a body, so you've got now three, actually four, but one of them is identified, witnesses extrinsic to the affidavit affirming that what Walter Howe said in the affidavit was true. Then Carolyn Siska not only said that he told others, including her, that he saw bodies, alien bodies at the crash at Roswell, he also tells her that in 1990 or 91, the Pentagon asked him, asked him to go to Washington, and asked him to open the International Museum at Roswell. So you wonder, well, why would the what? museum be... Well, yes! This is a letter from Carolyn Siska uh, to UFO Magazine. I interviewed her about this. So she said the Pentagon asked Walter to do this. Now, now the plot really sickens. I mean, look at how exciting this is, guys. I mean, I am thrilled with this. The thrill because of this great, this great story. So now the whole story, for at least for me, comes into focus because now you've got Walter being tasked by the Pentagon. Every single tumbler falls into place in Roswell. So for me, the extrinsic evidence validates Walter's affidavit. So we'll go back to the affidavit real quickly. He said this. So now he's in a quandary. Walter has made a vow, a promise to Colonel Blanchard, his best friend, his mentor, his older brother, a father figure, Blanchard, who was going to fly one of the planes dropping an atomic bomb in Nagasaki, that Blanchard, vice chairman of the Air Force, okay, West Point, 19, was West Point, a football player at West Point, this guy was golden boy, and yeah. Walter worshipped him, he makes a promise never to disclose the secret of Roswell, now he's in a quandary, he's already disclosed it, he's now affirmed the video with Dennis and Wendy that they're keeping quiet. The museum is furious about this, about what really happened. The other story is he already told Carolyn Siska that the Pentagon asked him. The secret is like bubbling through. What does he do? So Don Schmidt tells me, Don Schmidt says to me in the interview, he said to Walter, the way to resolve all of this is to make a deathbed statement, a statement made in contemplation of death. You're not dying tomorrow, but he had cancer. He was dying or whatever he had. But I understand that Dennis's argument, and Dennis is right, saying that Walter did not write on a legal pad these words. It's correct. Don admits it. Don said right. he helped him with it, right? Don knew what happened, but it stands the test of law. So Walter drafts it signs it, thereby affirming it, and it is sealed. When he dies, the museum doesn't release it. Because there's more to the story than just the affidavit. There's the whole 
existence of the museum and its validity, it is a loose thread. Tom and Don say to Julie, we really should release this. Actually, guys, weeks before the book had to go to the printer, weeks, that's when the decision was made to release this affidavit. And it's released to the book without any editorial context to it. There's no apparatus. It's just Walter's bare affidavit. So I tend to believe the affidavit. But when you read the affidavit in all of its paragraphs, when you read the history of what Walter did and Carol and Siska's mind-boggling testimony that the Pentagon told him to open the museum, suddenly the plot sickens and makes enormous sense. It's a double, double cross. Rainey is in Roswell on July 8th. They agree to admit they cop to the first crash, deny the second. They need a fall guy. It can't be Sheridan Cavett, who's only a captain. What they, you know, what's the point? They need a good fall guy. Who's the, who are they going to plant the knife into? And Jesse Marcel Jr. confirms what I said. Who are they going to plant the knife into? No, Blanchard. And all of them, all of these honorable men set up Jesse Marcel, Major Marcel, who's already agreed to deceive, to be part of the deception. So he's now, his hands are dirty. They're all dirty. They agree to plant the knife in Jesse Marcel. They send him to Roswell with the material. He's posing with it. They send him out of the room. He comes back into the room. The material's not there. He's the Homer Simpson of 1947, the base intelligence officer back from radar school who can't tell a balloon from, from anything else. He goes back and in Walter Hout's testimony, probably one of the most telling statements of an insider, he describes Jesse coming to the base and explaining to Walter what happened, and he said he would not talk about it and didn't want to talk about it again, goes home to his family that night. These are the words of Jesse Marcel Jr. Goes home to his family that night, that same night, and says, Roswell never happened, nothing ever happened, do not talk about it again, and he starts drinking rather heavily, and when the Korean War breaks out and there's a chance for him to really go up to full colonel, he tells his son, I'm leaving the Air Force, and the son criticizes his father, Jesse, he says, why? Why are you leaving the Air Force? There's a war out. And he says, never tell me what I'm supposed to do. And they go to Homa, Louisiana, where he spends the rest of his days repairing televisions. He's a victim of Roswell, just like the Frankie Rose, the Dan Dwyers, the Alpha Boys, the Jack Rodden, and the whole rest of them. Hey, listeners, did you know that Fate is the oldest and best-known publication on the paranormal? Well, since 1948, Fate has provided their readers with fascinating in-depth articles on subjects like psychics and spiritualists, ghosts and hauntings, UFOs and aliens, as well as readers' true personal mystical experiences. For under $20, you can keep up with all the latest information. To subscribe, call now at one 800 728 2730 or visit Fate's website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. So what are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. 
tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and you will too. You're in the Paracast with James Steinberg and David Bianchi. You never know what's going to happen next. On the Paracast of Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, our final segment with Bill Burns, who is the co-host of the History Channel's UFO Hunters and also publisher of UFO Magazine. We're talking about the fall guys in Roswell, I guess. Bill, I have to ask you, because it's not clear to me, why did the Pentagon ask them to open the museum, fill that Ah, yes. That's the mind-boggling thing to me, too, David, because why wouldn't they just let this thing die a dog's death? Rest already. Who needs this? Gee, what's going on? Well, I think, first of all, that now here's a guy who knows the whole truth opening up a museum. At first, I thought this is Walter Howe's mental conflict. He knows the truth, but he can't talk about the truth because take a step back to 1947, 1948. Remember, Walter Howe is on a fast track in the Air Force, right? He's on a fast track because his mentor, he's attached to... Blanchard. Blanchard winds up, he's going to get his four stars, and he's going to be the vice chairman of the the Air Force. That's what he's going to be. So he becomes head of SAC. At the very least, at the very least, he's a full colonel. Maybe he could have gotten to brigadier. So this is what he's turning his back on. Why did he leave the Air Force? Why did a Chicago boy choose to stay in a small town like Roswell where time would pass him by and sell insurance? Why? Because he made an oath to Blanchard. What did he see happen to Marcel? Marcel was humiliated before the entire nation and the national news with a sheepish grin on his face, and that's the grin he has. That's the grin, a sheepish grin on his face, mm-hmm. having been deceived in public, humiliated, because he couldn't tell a weather balloon or a project, Mo- or whatever the hell it was, it certainly wasn't a balloon, from the Roswell wreckage. How can Walter Hout refuse a direct order to reveal the truth about Roswell should that direct order come, which he never wanted to uh, have to obey? How does he do it? He leaves the Air Force. That's how he does it. Now the truth can rest for him, the ultimate sacrifice. But Roswell doesn't go away. Jesse Marcel goes public in 1978. There's Stan Friedman. There's William Moore. There's Don Schmidt. There's everybody writing books about Roswell. They need a way to bleed off the pressure. What's the best way to bleed off the pressure? Tell as much truth as you can and shut it the hell up. So let all the thousands and thousands of people, including me, including Corso, including the rest of the world, go to Roswell and learn what happened in 1947. What do they care? The truth is never going to come out. Walter Howe's going to see to it. But the truth will out. It bubbles to the surface like a volcano. That's active again, and that's why the situation started bubbling up. So I think that the Roswell Museum was a release valve. If people want to know about Roswell, turn it into a tourist attraction. Make it a Barnum and Bailey circus. Put this in it. Put that in it. Enjoy yourselves. That's how to keep the truth hidden. How do you hide it? Right in plain sight. Who is hiding it? The man who knows the truth. Where is it being hidden? At the museum that's telling the truth. It's the Wizard of Oz. That's exactly what you do. And this is exactly how you hide things. Why are UFOs riddle me this, Batman, why are UFOs just like serial killers? Why? Because they both hide in plain sight. So, Bill, A lot of people, a lot of very clear thinkers in this field think that perhaps 
the Roswell episode, whatever the truth of it is, maybe at this point it has been so long, you have most of the prime, well, pretty much all of the primary witnesses except for Jesse Marcel Jr. are gone. Does this now pass into myth? Does this cease being useful in the search for actual information? And before you answer that, I know you don't want to talk too much about UFO hunters, but does UFO hunters spend its time looking at cases that have been tossed over a trillion times and a half or... Are you going after the new stuff, the new blood, the stuff that's much closer to the present time and therefore much easier to verify? Answer is it's a three-part question, and the three parts in succession are, no, the Roswell witnesses aren't all dead. Jesse Marcel Jr., who witnessed this, is still alive. Frankie Rowe is still alive. Alpha Boyd is still alive. Jack Rodden is still alive. They're alive. They're talking. Will it pass into myth? Parts of it will, but I think the story is now out there. Anybody who chooses to look at this thing, can see it from the eyes of the dead Walter Hout, what exactly happened. It's in the affidavit and the stuff we cover in the magazine and what happened after um, Walter Hout left the service and then opened the museum. And while you opened the museum, I think it's really pretty clear that there is a long history of that. So I'm going to say, no, it's not going to pass into myth. The story of Marion Magruder, who was at the National Air War College in 1947, Stanton investigated this. Roger Lear investigated this. I investigated this. We all came up with the same conclusion. The guy was a real guy. He wound up being one of the largest McDonald's franchise holders in the country, a real war hero from the Battle of Okinawa in World War II, went to Wright Field in 1947 in July with his class from National Air War College from Georgia, and he saw the living alien, and what he said was stunning. His children told me they have no reason to lie. They're not writing a book about UFOs. The granddaughter is not writing a book about UFOs. It's just a story that their grandfather told as he was nearing death, there is no reason to lie. I believe that story. So it's a right field. The, the military had to make a decision on it. And um, I think where it went, by the way, was into private industry thereafter, where it still sits today. But I think Roswell will not go into myth. It's mythologized, but the story itself has a nexus of validity and legitimacy. I think it will not go away. Uh, what we're going to do is the answer to your questions, actually two and three, is the same answer. Yes, the both. Okay? Yes, there's historical material, and we do some new cases that are great. I think that at this point, maybe, uh, you know, and obviously you're going to do what you're going to do on your show. At this point, I think there's a problem in discussing the old cases because here we are, Bill, we're 60 years discussing these cases. Well, okay, in the case of Roswell, no, it's not true. It's not 60 years. It's what, maybe 20, 30 years talking about that case. We just, it seems like we keep going in circles. Now, mind you, and people who listen to the Paracast know that, I mean, Gene has had a long time involvement in this. I'm someone who is a, just a, just another guy with a whole lifelong bunch of experiences who has kept them for the most part quiet and only really started talking about them publicly in the last two years. So for most of my life, this stuff has been part of my life, but it's been compartmentalized. And I think for a lot of people, that's how they, they deal with this. For some of us, you get to a certain point and you just feel compelled to start talking about it. You, you have to because this stuff boils inside of you and starts to you know, basically drive you a little crazy, especially when there is ongoing episodes, as there have been in my life, not specifically of UFOs, but all sorts of unusual paranormal stuff. So you get to the point where you have to talk about this stuff 
But then what happens in the last two years, I've discovered that there is an entire universe of players here. Most of these people with very clear agendas, uh, mostly involving either ego, money, or God forbid both. In my interactions with some of these people, like Carrie and Schmidt, I've had interactions with them personally. This is just my personal opinion. I don't find Schmidt to be a credible person at all. I really honestly don't. I know he's done a bunch of research. At the same time, Bill, and this is this huge problem where you find someone like Schmidt who has, he's done a bunch of work, but then the guy has said things that are questionable about his own past. And, and this is where I get so frustrated, and I express this frustration to Gene all the time, that I get so frustrated by the fact that it seems like trying to have a rational conversation in this field is like trying to find a minion in Iraq. You just can't. I mean, I get your point. And, and really, one of the answers to, uh, to your questions um, or your comments, not a question, yeah. Yeah. is basically, look, I think everybody has feet of clay. Everybody does. And you're going to find holes in everybody. So, I mean, um, I think you've got to look at the story and, and to some extent minimize the person if the person is not the teller of the original story. I mean, I think that's the answer. I mean, you know, you're talking about Don Schmidt and you and anybody can read what Kevin Randall wrote about Don Schmidt and make up, you know, make up his or her own mind about the story that happened with um, Don Schmidt talking about his background. I'm not going to go into it here. I wasn't a yeah, part of it. Reason. But the fact is, it's, it's clear as day what, uh, what Kevin Randall wrote about it, and Randall and Schmidt wrote one of the early books on Roswell. Uh, the fact is that it is true that Don Schmidt admitted to me, he didn't admit to me, he told me, he said straight out, I helped Walter Hout draft the information that was in that affidavit, and, I, and, and we drafted it from statements that Walter Hout had made. Tom Carey's open about this. He, he's not trying to hide it. He said, nobody's making this up. These are not statements that Don Schmidt put in Walter's mouth, because he didn't. These are statements that Walter Hout made to other people that these statements were troubling Walter that he said it, he was breaching his oath to Bull Blanchard, and he said, what, you know, what can I do? And it was Don's suggestion that he draft the statements that he'd already made into an affidavit and tell the whole story, and that's how the affidavit was drafted. And Dennis is correct, Dennis Ballfazer is correct in saying he challenges not the information itself in the testimony, because how could he challenge Walter Hout's statement that he saw the alien bodies, and Walter Hout made the same statement to him. But what he challenges is the context of the, I, I think, I'm, I'm speaking for Dennis now, and Dennis can certainly tell me that I'm wrong, but he's challenging the context of that affidavit as it appears in Witness to Roswell without any saying, well, I helped him do this, and I provided him with some information based on things he said. I mean, that's where Dennis is right. So you've got this gray area where there's a big overlap. But you are right, David, in what you're saying about every time you want to put your foot down on a story and you're going to rely on the legitimacy, the credibility, the honesty, what have you, of the teller, you find something out about that person that is, is so nefarious. So-and-so was in jail for blank. So-and-so lied on his application for blank. So-and-so didn't have the job he said he had. We run into this all, all the time. And sometimes you just got to go beyond the person who's telling the story and look at the story and say yes, 
people aren't just in this thing altruistically. There are some people out there and saying, if I'm going to spend my time doing this, I'm doing this for money. When you give you a classic example, there was this UFO opinion something, a newsletter. David Garrison is one of the people writing it, and he inadvertently, it turns out, so there's no malice here whatsoever, inadvertently, he used UFO Magazine's logo. Okay? This right. Is a big yeah. argument, right? This was last year. So essentially, what happened was UFO Magazine, now the owners of the trademark, not I, okay? It's make determination. I do not own this trademark. The reason I publish the magazine, I basically run the magazine now, is that I own a magazine that I, for which I license a name, is that the company that bought the magazine from Don and Vicki Ecker back in the end of 1997, early 1998, they ran that company until 2003 and said, we don't want to be in the magazine business, forget about it, we're going to shut it down. I said, you can't shut it down. People are lying this magazine. You've got this subscriber base. You've got a liability to them. Okay, fine. I'll sell the damn thing for a dollar. Fine. There's a dollar. Put it on his desk, and that's how I got it with Don Vicky, etc., etc. So that's how this happened. But I didn't get the name. I got the magazine's assets, all but the trademark, which they kept because they believed this company believed, rightly so. It will turn out at the end of the day that the trademark will, from which they will derive something. They are in it strictly as a business venture. They are not UFO folks. They don't have to be. They're a licensing company. So when David Garrison used the logo, that's the, that's the trademark property of a company that's had it for, for, for 10 years, over 10 years, on his newsletter, what did they do? They did the only thing they had to do, because, again, not to be technical, in the world of trademarks, you must... No options here. You, well, you have to protect, yeah, yeah. assert have to that trademark or you will lose it. That is your burden as a trademark holder. They assert a trademark. They said, you know what? Cease and desist. Well, uh, oh, what are you doing? He's doing it for nothing. Burns, because that's how they identify the magazine. Is in it for the money, the money. The nasty letters that I got. Are you in it for my call daily? I said, look, A, it's not my trademark, so I'm not the one asserting it, okay? So let's just get that. I don't have standing as a plaintiff. Two, why did you take our logo in the first place? Don't you realize that the company that does have the trademark must assert trademark or else they lose it? It'll be diluted. They'll just lose it away. He apologized, made it public, went public on his website, went public. Fine. It was all settled. But the fact is, in that world, this is what must happen. But one of the accusations was that Burns is in it for the money. And the fact is, I'm a writer. I write professionally. I'm a publisher. I publish professionally. I happen to have a passion for this research. I happen to love the research. I happen to want to get the truth out. I happen to believe in our UFO community. Call them whatever you want to call them. I believe in that community. I want to fight for that community. I want to defend that community. I want to get the truth that community, for every single experiencer out there, I want to fight for them and say, you are not crazy, you are having a legitimate experience, and I want to help you find the truth. That's what I really want to do. But I, hey, I'd love to get paid for it and pay my mortgage. So, but I mean, there you go, in it for the money. In it for the money is not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, you guys want to get paid for doing a radio broadcast. I'm mean, as altruistic as you are. You'd like to see some revenue. You'd like advertisers to pony up some dough. I mean, this is what you want to see. 
see. Well, David's altruistic, is, actually. I, I'm in for the money, to be frank. Well, you know, you, no, you know sure. let's face it. Look at this. But the thing also is I found out very early in graduate school that one of the, you know, find something you like to do and find somebody to pay you to do it. Well, sure. We're just about out of time here, but I wanted to thank Bill Burns, who is co-host of this new show from the History Channel. There are two UFO Hunters TV shows, but we're talking about the one from the History Channel called UFO Hunters. Check your local listings for where it's shown in your area, because between the cable and satellite providers, it's all over the place. They get different feeds. They get the eastern feed and the western feed and the cattle feed and who knows. And you can also learn more about UFO Magazine at UFOMag.com. And Bill Burns, we appreciate your presence. Congratulations with the new show, and we hope it gets great ratings, that you make millions off it, and that you definitely send us some. And thank you very much for joining us on the Paracast. Thanks, okay, guys. Thanks for having me. Good night. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in the Paracast.